In another version of 2020, this week I would have been in Milwaukee at the Democratic National Convention. Instead, I am home, basically under a fancy blanket fort in my spare bedroom. But just as I'm continuing to bring you this show, albeit slightly differently, so too will the party committees bring the American people conventions. Those presidential nominating conventions, however, will look little like the political mega events that we've seen in this country for the past few decades. The novel coronavirus pandemic has made the notion of huge stadiums full of cheering supporters, plus countless meetings, rallies, and after parties, unadvisable under current U.S. public health guidelines. Now, for both parties, rejiggering their conventions has been a significant challenge. Democrats have decided to take a largely virtual approach to their party's event after initially pushing it from July into August. Republicans, led by urging from President Trump, hope to hold as close to a normal convention as possible. So much so that they changed the location of the Republican National Convention celebrations from Charlotte, North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. The original site in Charlotte refused to go along with Trump's demands for a crowded, large-scale event. So, Republicans searched for a city that would disregard current health guidance and let thousands of people from all over the country gather in one place. They ultimately chose Jacksonville, largely because the city's political leadership aligns with President Trump. But that was all back in mid-June. When the RNC chose Florida, COVID-19 cases in the state were much lower. Since then, Florida's case numbers have surged, setting record highs and really complicating things for those planning the convention. After many iterations, Republicans announced this week that they'll hold some sort of scaled-back convention in Jacksonville with a mix of indoor and outdoor events. The whole saga has been a tug of war between the Trump team's desire to get Trump in front of a large crowd of supporters where he politically thrives and the administration's battle against science and public health guidelines that we see playing out in everything from school openings to mass controversies. So why has Trump been so adamant about holding a convention that's at least partially in person amidst a pandemic? Why might this campaign team view the convention moment as so critical this election cycle? Plus, if significantly pared down or virtual versions of conventions can work just fine, what might the parties learn for the future of these events? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Political conventions are full of spectacle, lots of pomp and tradition, thousands of attendees. It can get kind of lost that the point of party conventions are actually pretty simple. Nominate a candidate and set a party platform. I turned to my colleague, national reporter Michael Shearer, to explain more about how conventions typically work and how they've become these political mega events. So, Michael, what normally happens at a party convention before a presidential election? What's the point of conventions? It used to be that conventions were the place where you actually nominated a presidential candidate for your party. And, and they used to be suspense-filled events where party leaders from around the country would gather and actually make a decision on who the candidate would be. That started changing in the 1970s. And in the last few decades, conventions have basically been trumped-up televised spectacles where each party gets four nights usually, to present their candidate and their platform and their idea and their identity to the country. The broadcast networks give it coverage. Sometimes there's some suspense, sometimes there's some conflict, but really what they are is messaging events and, and they kick off the core part of the general election campaign. Uh, it takes you through November 3rd. 
In addition to nominating a party's candidate, you mentioned the party platform. What happens at conventions in regards to the party platform? What What is that? So historically, both parties actually have a document, and it's usually not very long, 20, 30 pages, that lays out the policies and ideas and beliefs the party as a whole has. They're mainly for whoever the presidential candidate is, but they are used also to help define House candidates, Senate candidates, even local candidates. The process for working them out begins usually weeks or even months before the convention happens. There's a committee both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have to begin haggling what goes into the platform. And one of the votes that usually happens at a convention is to accept the party platform. And the delegates who have been nominated through the primary process get a chance to vote up or down on it. And almost always it, it passes. But the fights about what goes in and what stays out can have an impact on on the direction of the party and on the identity of a party. And not a lot of people, but some people do pay attention to what's in them. What's an example of something that might be in a party platform that would be deliberated? Usually in the Republican platform, there's a lot of debate about life issues, about abortion. The language tends to be rather comprehensive on the Republican side when it comes to those issues because the party activists are the ones drafting the platform. On the Democratic side, historically, it's a fight over how far left to push the party around issues like climate change, fossil fuel extraction, criminal justice issues. And and this year, there's been a process that's been going on for, for months now between the Biden and the Bernie Sanders camps to sort of work those issues out to avoid any sort of fight at a convention. So the main event at a convention really is, as you mentioned, nominating the candidate. How does this nominating process work? What actually happens at these conventions to nominate the party's candidate? Normally what happens is if you have going into the convention uh, a candidate who clearly has a majority of delegate support, then it's really a ceremonial event. And what will happen is each state will have a delegation, they'll get a piece of the floor, and the microphones will be set up around the room and someone will stand on the stage and let each of the delegations from each of the states give a little address and then voice their support for whoever the nominee is going to be. If there's a split vote within the delegation, they'll announce that as well. 25 votes for candidate X and 13 votes for candidate Y. And at some point, the candidate who will be the nominee gets more than 50% of the delegates and there's big applause all around and everybody acts like something momentous just happened for the television cameras. Let's pivot to talk about this year now. Conventions usually take this tremendous amount of planning, of effort, money, energy from so many different groups, and so much so that sometimes people even move themselves or their families to the cities where the conventions will be held so they can work on planning them from there. These are essentially no small feat. So with that context, what are conventions going to look like this year? Let's start with the Democratic Convention. It was supposed to be in Milwaukee this week. It's now been moved to August 17th to 20th. But what do we know about how it will work and who will actually physically be in Milwaukee in August? It's going to be dramatically different. Most of what I've just described is not going to take place. All the voting that matters is going to be done over email, so there's no spectacle to watch. All of the delegates who have voting power have been told not to come to Milwaukee where the convention is going to be held. I'm sure some will still show up, but there won't be a room of supporters for, in this case, Joe Biden. There won't be Bernie Sanders supporters in the room to cheer their man on or Elizabeth Warren supporters to cheer their woman on. And instead, we're going to get a four-night televised and streamed event that is basically going to be a produced television show. 
that will involve speeches, which the Democratic Party is hoping will still get carried by the broadcast networks. I think each night there'll be a keynote speech. There'll be a lot of pre-canned footage, I'm sure testimonials from lots of people about Joe Biden, about what the Democratic Party stands for. And there will be satellite events, they say. And I haven't actually described how these will work, but while the main event will be happening at a convention center in Milwaukee, they're going to beam in events from other states around the country. Uh, part of this is because they're trying to do this whole event respecting public health guidelines, which basically are still calling for social distancing. So you can't have a packed, crowded room. And you certainly can't have a packed, crowded room with people without masks on or, or with balloons that drop from the ceiling and, and lots of screaming. So they're, they're trying to work around all the tropes of what a convention is. And we don't know exactly what it'll look like, but it's going to be very different. The actual platform process has been going on for a while through Zoom meetings by the party committee. The Biden campaign has been pretty good about keeping the temperature down. It's it's much more civil than it was in 2016 when Hillary Clinton really struggled with some Bernie Sanders supporters to figure out how to draft that platform. The two camps this time are working very well together, and they've released a number of the pieces of that plan already. So I've been to conventions, you've been to conventions, and and these tropes that you talk about, the balloons falling from the ceiling, the high-energy crowds, those are the things that really make these events very exciting, very experiential. So what's lost, maybe beyond those things, with a total virtual convention? What's missing? Another thing that conventions are for parties is they're real gathering points and rallying points for activists. They're massive events, and a normal convention will have 30,000 party activists and other people come, and then another 20,000 reporters will come doing events from usually around 4 o'clock in the afternoon until 11 p.m. at night in a main hall. But dozens and dozens of seminars, gatherings, pep rallies all around the city, they're happening uh, at, at the same time. And for a lot of political activists and professionals, these are really key experiences in their career development. That's almost all going to be lost this year on the Democratic side, because People are being asked not to travel. And so while some people will travel, Joe Biden will be in Milwaukee. Some of his team will be there and other Democratic Party officials will be there. It's not going to be this sort of gathering place. There's no after parties. There's no musical guests at a bar downtown afterwards. The other thing that conventions tend to be are rallying points for whatever state they're held in. Democrats picked Milwaukee because Wisconsin is one of the swingiest of the swing states this year. They wanted to activate and involve tens of thousands of volunteers, which would then be sort of the tip of their spear for get out the vote efforts in the state. And and that's basically also been put on hold. That's not going to be able to happen this year. All right, let's move on to the Republicans. Can you explain the evolution of the 2020 Republican National Convention? It was planned for August in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Trump decided he wanted to move it. Why? What What happened? Conventions are usually planned years in advance, and there's a process to select a city, but it's an enormous build-out. There's a massive fundraising effort. Republicans did that this year in North Carolina. The event was supposed to happen in Charlotte. And basically what happened was President Trump decided early in the spring that he wanted, despite the COVID pandemic, to have a convention that looked and felt very much like conventions of old. And, And he went to the city and the state of North Carolina and and had his representatives basically say, we want to be able to fill our arena. We want to have cheering crowds. We want all of those things. And we want you to tell us that this is something we will be able to do in several months. And the governor of North Carolina, 
Roy Cooper, who's a Democrat, on the advice of his public health experts, said, we just cannot guarantee that for you. And the president said, well, if you don't guarantee it for us, I'm going to leave your city. And that's what they've done. They've relocated to Jacksonville, Florida, where the mayor of the city is a former Republican Party leader for the state of Florida. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is a Republican who's very close to Trump. The city council in the city is a majority Republican body because they felt they would have more freedom to hold the kind of convention they wanted to hold. How is that possible? Is that something the RNC can really just do this late in the game? Now, because of contractual obligations, this is a, is a very expensive last minute move. You know, a lot of money had already been raised for the Charlotte event. That money's staying in Charlotte. A lot of commitments had already been made. Uh, a lot of those commitments have to be paid for. And the party is contractually obligated to actually have the business of their convention take place in Charlotte because that's what they agreed to with the city. And so there's actually going to be kind of two conventions that Republicans hold. The weekend before, Republican delegates will gather in Charlotte, a a subset of them, about 300, and they will vote on a lot of the business of the convention. They've actually decided not to have a Republican Party platform this year because they didn't want to deal with the logistics of making that happen and some of the fights that tend to come up on the Republican side. And then on Monday afternoon, there will be planes chartered to take those delegates from Charlotte down to Jacksonville, where another 2,200 or so delegates may be gathered for four nights of what they're calling convention celebrations in Jacksonville. What will those celebrations look like? I know it's evolved quite a bit over the past months. When Trump originally decided to move to Jacksonville, his hope was he could just take out the Five Star Arena, which is a hockey arena in town, fits about 16,000 people, and hold a regular event without social distancing, without uh, mask requirements. They, They said they'd do a lot of testing, there'd be a lot of hand sanitizer, but he just wanted a big Trump rally. It That was before the recent spike in COVID cases in Florida that has pretty much made you know that vision impossible to pull off. Jacksonville in particular and Florida in general is one of the biggest hotspots right now in the world for COVID cases. And bars have been shut down again. There's mandatory social distancing. Restaurants aren't allowing people in. How much power does the president have to override these health precautions that are put in place by the governor or by public health officials in a given state? So they moved the convention out of North Carolina because the governor wouldn't agree to lift some of these health restrictions. But what's actually different in Florida? So I think it has less to do with power. He doesn't have direct power to overrule local authorities when it comes to issues like health. What he does have is very good relationships with those local authorities, which he didn't have in North Carolina. So he has the ability to persuade Ron DeSantis to allow things, even things that might overrule his own health experts, that he wouldn't be able to persuade a Democrat to do. Now, that said, the Republican Party has made clear just this week that they are pulling back from that initial vision, that the realities of the pandemic in that city just don't make it realistic that you would have 16,000 people gathering over four nights. Initially, they said they were going to try and test everyone every day, which seemed like an enormous task that would be complicated by the fact that it's hard to get rapid results for that many tests. So you'd have people coming back with positive results, even though they'd been hanging out with other people, and you'd have 
sort of large messes of quarantines. What they're now saying is that they're going to limit the initial nights to just the delegates, which is a pool of about 2,500 people, much easier to socially distance in a large space. That's still 2,500 people traveling from around the country. That's true. And and we don't know how many of that 2,500 will actually choose to make the journey. I mean, a lot of delegates at these events tend to be in the population of people who are most susceptible for serious complications from COVID, people over the age of 65, people with comorbidities and pre-existing conditions. And so I think it's very likely that a significant chunk of the delegates who have been chosen to nominate Trump choose not to go at the last minute. So what's the current plan for how these events in Jacksonville will look? The current plan released this week is to have a a mixture of events that will take place at this hockey arena, but also at an outdoor amphitheater, which is actually covered nearby the NFL stadium, which is not far. It's all sort of located downtown there in Jacksonville. And I think even built into that is some wiggle room. Like they haven't actually laid out the program. So depending on what the trajectory of the virus is by late August, I think you'll see more adjustments made. But the president has basically been forced over the last month to deal with the realities of this illness in a way that he tried very hard to avoid. So basically, just to sort of summarize all of this, the RNC scrambled to move the convention out of North Carolina so that they could have something that felt more like a normal convention. And now they're essentially having to scramble again to have a scaled down version of a convention in Florida. That's right. And there may be more scrambling between now and the actual convention. The plans are not yet finalized. And the the Republican Party has made clear that they will be flexible. And I think the, the mayor of Jacksonville has made clear after initially saying that the convention would show that Jacksonville is open for business. He's backtracked. He may sort of push the rules, but he's not going to overrule health authorities in his community just to please the president. What about Trump? Has he committed to being flexible? Uh, he has wavered on his bold predictions of what he would have. In his conversations with Roy Cooper back in North Carolina, he had made clear that he wanted no socially distanced event. He wanted a packed room. He's since made clear that that he is willing to adjust. And obviously, they've gone from a a 16,000 or 19,000 seat arena to at least three of these nights, probably having closer to 2,000 people and maybe outside. So he's sort of bending to the realities of his situation. I think what happened with the president was he had hoped in June to basically by the summer restart his old campaign style, which is traveling around the country, holding big arena rallies, collecting names, getting huge television audiences. And he tried to do that in Tulsa, Oklahoma about a month ago, and it was sort of a disaster. In that case, a 19,000-seat arena and only about a little more than 6,000 people showed up after his campaign and his campaign advisors, and he had promised a sold-out arena. And there's actually since then been a spike in COVID cases in Tulsa that health authorities have said, while they don't know the direct tie, are likely connected in some way to that event being held there. So then why has this been so important to the Trump administration, to have at least a partial in-person convention or to get Trump out there speaking to supporters? There are a couple of answers to that. Uh, one is it's his political style. I mean, he is a spectacle politician. And mass gatherings and his performance in, in front of them, which are often off the cuff and entertaining and comedic, have long been a major draw for him and his campaign. They've been a major way of them to gather signatures and 
identities of potential voters. And it's also secondarily and no less important what he really enjoys doing. And you talk to Trump advisors and they talk about the importance of, you know, making sure he's happy <laughs> as a campaigner and as a politician and getting out there is something that he really enjoys. And so it's something he personally wants to do. But he's really struggling, and he's been struggling for months to try and figure out how to adjust to just the realities of what he calls the plague, the, the thing that has hit this country that has curtailed his ability to do what he wants to do. And we see that desire to speak to his supporters coming out in, in many of Trump's speeches. Recently, one speech from the Rose Garden. We saw it in his July 4th speech at Mount Rushmore. He was really trying to make his campaign points in these venues that aren't traditionally used for campaigning. That's right. And it is slightly more awkward to light into Joe Biden and say he's a threat to America when you're standing in front of 25 reporters at the White House compared to standing in front of 15,000 people in red ball caps who who already adore you uh, and are cheering your every word. It, the effect is different. It's clearly been harder for him. I think the Mount Rushmore speech for his campaign and his supporters was a far more successful event. It was sort of a hybrid White House event. He was able to, you know, attack his political enemies, but do it in the frame of a patriotic ceremonial event at a national monument that a president might attend. Now, just to bring this back to conventions, as we look ahead to August, do you foresee any sort of problems with these two kinds of unprecedented approaches to conventions? Have we ever seen anything like this? And what problems might arise as these two parties try to tackle these really unprecedented circumstances? Well, I think logistically, the Democrats are going in with far less risk. Everything about their planning has been to broadcast and embrace the idea of caution. Joe Biden's running as the antithesis of Trump's bold and brash style. And he's very happy to wear a mask. He's very happy to follow all health guidelines and hire epidemiologists to help him plan his convention, all those things. And thinks that the message, even if it's less splashy and less exciting to watch on television, is one that will benefit him. The risk for President Trump is what we've been discussing. I mean, we don't know how this event will go off. We don't know if he will once again have to either cancel or curtail his events in such a way that, you know, deny him the spectacle that he is looking for. For the Democrats, the convention will be a chance for Biden to introduce his vice presidential pick. He still wants huge viewership for this. He still wants people to tune in. He still wants people to feel like this is an event they want to watch and have to watch. And so I think one risk for him is that no one watches. And that's been a risk for Biden since he got in the race. He has not been one who can draw big crowds or get big viewership online or really attract a lot of attention for live events from cable news bookers. So, so that will be a risk for him. And I think there's a similar risk for President Trump. He's increasingly in dire need of resetting the table of this election. He's trailing in national and state polls. And he needs an event in late August that resets his presidency, his candidacy, and defines the race more on his terrain. And if people aren't tuning in, or if the only story coming out of that event is COVID case counts, that might really undermine his message. Do you expect that this year, if these conventions go okay, that it might change the future of conventions in this country? Maybe we won't have these huge spectacles every four years? Does it sort of shine a light on whether these massive conventions are actually necessary? I think it does shine a light. And I, I don't know how you can predict what that will mean going forward. But 
conventions, at least for the last couple decades, have basically been TV shows and rather expensive ones. The, the thing you have to mention in this is that it's still possible under our current system, both the Republican and Democratic parties, to have a contested convention. It would have been possible this year to be walking right now into a Democratic convention where we had no idea who the nominee was, where both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and, say, Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris would have a significant chunk of the delegates. You need 50 percent plus one to win the nomination. And therefore, you would have had a, what they used to call a brokered convention where delegates would have to haggle on the floor and everyone's vote would be up for grabs. And in that case, there is a real utility to having everyone gather in one place. But the way the parties have gone recently, the chances of that happening are less and less likely. And so the question is whether the parties want to try and get their big viewership in a different way than a mass gathering in a basketball arena. And it's possible that we come out of, you know, the Democratic event this year and Democrats think, oh, that was just better. You know, we avoided the, the floor fights uh, between Bernie Sanders supporters and Joe Biden supporters. We were able to get our message across. It cost us far less money. We could devote our resources elsewhere. My guess is that assuming we're able to get beyond this virus over the next four years, both parties will want to show a return to normal and will return to something like more like what we had before. But as we know, that's still a big if. A sense of any return to normalcy seems very far off in so many facets. All right, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show and on other Washington Post podcasts so we can keep making things that you want to hear. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want from us. If you take the survey, you can be entered to win one of five $100 Tango gift cards. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.